Hello, and welcome to The Promise of Discovery, a podcast where members and investigators at the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center talk about their research in intellectual and developmental disabilities. And I'm here with Josh Wade, who's the co-founder of Adaptive Technology Consulting. Say hello, Josh. Hey, Amy. Uh, nice to be here with you today in, in this setting. Um, and uh, let me just start by asking you, um, what is it that you do at Vanderbilt and with the Kennedy Center? So I have a long history, actually, with Vanderbilt and the Kennedy Center. I graduated from Vanderbilt University with my PhD um, in clinical psychology. I came here again as a postdoctoral fellow in 2011 with a group called TRIAD, or the Treatment and Research Institute for Autism Spectrum Disorders. And um, I I never left. I joined the faculty shortly after that and um, became a member of the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center at that time. Um, So here now, I have two major roles. One is as a clinical psychologist that specializes in the very early diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. So I do that both at the Children's Hospital and then also through research studies, which is going to be relevant to what we talk about today. And then my other role is at the at Triad as the Associate Director of Research there, um, through which I help create and test new treatments and tools like Autoscreen. So what got you interested in disabilities research? That's a great question. I first became interested in disabilities research when I was in graduate school. My program had a really heavy emphasis on research, but as part of my training, I found out that I really just enjoyed testing with kids with autism. I just really enjoyed administering those tools and working with people with that diagnosis. And so over time, as part of my role here, it's been really wonderful to be able to combine my research with my clinical training and to use all of that to help families. Um, Over time too, as I've made more personal connections with people on the autism spectrum, it's really motivated me to use all of these resources that we have available to us to um, really figure out how to help other people. Right, right. And how how do you manage your time if your if your role is so split across these different you know um, you know categories? That's um, how well I do it. That probably depends on the week and when you okay. ask me, Josh. Right. But um, I th- think working here, we have a really vibrant community of people that are experts in a lot of different things, and so we work really closely together um, across a lot of different projects, like you and I. And that's part of what really contributes to some of the new and interesting things that we develop is that we all are involved in so many different worlds and activities. Right, right. Well, what about you? How did you get involved in disabilities work? Yeah, so when I was, um, it turns out uh, a decade ago, uh, this, you know, this, uh, this spring, um, I, uh, I made a, a major change in undergrad and um, switched from nutrition science to computer science. And That's a pretty big shift. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and um, it, it, it turned out to be a good move, and I enjoyed what I was doing more in, that, in the computer science program. 
and I was first connected with Dr. Mehta Sarkar through the undergraduate program, and she connected me with work that she was doing with Vanderbilt University and Triad. And so um, the project turned out to be uh, related to uh, autism intervention. And I took to it. Um, I really enjoyed uh, the type of work and the mission behind it. And it's, uh, it's work that I continue even a, a decade later. That's about the amount of time that we've been working together. Yeah, it's hard to believe. But yeah, and um, gosh, so many projects have uh, you know, kind of uh, come to fruition as, uh, during that period of time, um, including, you know, um, Autoscreen, um, which um, maybe we should talk a little bit about what that is um, concretely. What Autoscreen is, is a tool that we, we believe will help to address some of the systemic challenges that are preventing kids from being um, uh, identified with autism early enough to, to then lead to early intervention. So I'm going to back you up a little bit. So you say that it's a tool, but I think um, some of us know that there are lots of different tools, like questionnaires that you fill out at the pediatrician's office. So is it a tool like that? It's, it's a tool that pediatricians can use um, in the same way that they might use uh, commonly, uh, commonly used paper and pen type assessments. But Autoscreen is a digital application, um, uh, an app that runs on a tablet. Okay. And this, this app guides a clinician through a series of brief interactions uh, fun little activities um, where a provider interacts with a child and out of this interaction comes a series of key observations that can be codified, that can be quantified in order to look at what is the risk profile of this child. Okay, I'm going to stop you there again. So um, tell me about some of the fun interactions like, um, you know, what would a pediatrician be able to do with a child in an office to look for something like an autism symptom? Right, right. So, um, what we're what we're doing with Autoscreen is not the same as taking, let's say, a blood test or um, some kind of genetic sequencing. We're looking at behavioral markers that would be indicative of autism, um, and so you can look at um, a attributes related to social reciprocity. Um, so, like playing back and forth with somebody, rolling a car back and forth, exactly. stuff like that. Exactly. So, like, like back that. and forth social games that's right games and and, and many of the acti activities are fun so rolling a ball or a car back and forth and then you look at um, the skill of requesting help you know you can hand a, 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 a jar of bubbles to a child where the lid is on very tight and and you know if they're interested in the bubbles you know you'd, you'd typically expect that they'd want to get the bottle open to uh -huh. continue blowing the bubbles so that's interesting because that's something that I look for when I do my full evaluations for autism, which can take three to four hours most of the time when a family comes in to see me. You know, we're um, doing activities that involve playing with toys, seeing how kids look at my face, um, seeing how they will follow my point to something on the wall because we know from a long history of autism research that being able to play with another person, being able to look where they point, being able to communicate with them. These are all really important skills in young kids. And if they aren't developing those skills at the same rate as their peers, then it can have long-term impacts on their communication and play and social functioning as it gets older, as the, as the child gets older. Um, why 
So I know as part of this work that you've been talking to a lot of pediatricians, and that's something I want to ask you some more questions about in a minute. Um, you know, why don't you think pediatricians are doing this right now? What we've learned from talking with uh, pediatricians um, is is that if if specific autism training isn't part of their um, educational background, like their residencies and right. fellowships and things like that, that's right. Then they may not feel confident enough in performing assessments in their practices, and even if they are, uh, you know, comfortable with. Uh, reading, you know, the kind of results of a parent-reported um, type of assessment, they may not have the confidence about recommending next steps for a family. And a lot of what we heard from these these conversations was that a wait-and-see approach mm. was commonly adopted. So my understanding of a wait-and-see approach is to screen a child and then wait to see if some skills um, that might be part of an autism diagnosis that might not be um, developed over time. Um, and so in my experience, sometimes that can um, create problems for providers or for families because of wait times to access people like me. Um, is that something that you would hope Autoscreen would help address? Or is this something that might kind of contribute to some of the wait and see that's already happening? Yeah, that's a great question. We, we, we want Autoscreen to address a number of these, as I mentioned earlier, systemic challenges. Okay. One being the, uh, the wait and see, um, in the sense that we want a provider to be able to quickly and with high fidelity administer a structured assessment. I'm going to stop you for a second. What does high fidelity mean? Uh, true to the, uh, you know, the requirements of the assessment without deviating from the protocol. So being able to follow the rules and do things in a very structured way? That's right. That's okay. exactly right. And if, if, if a provider has a structured kind of guided assessment that they can follow with very clear rules, then they would potentially feel pretty confident in talking to a parent afterwards about next steps, especially if, if this tool results in uh, actionable metrics, you know, um, high risk, low risk, very easily understood um, as to what that means. That's something a provider can talk with a parent about. Um, but as far as the outcome of the assessment leading to um, referrals, there is a concern perhaps that you might see increased um, uh, wait list, uh, increased length of wait lists. But one of the other potential advantages of Autoscreen, we believe with our preliminary um, findings to date, is that the the issue of false positives, which directly contributes to these increased uh, wait lists, wait times for access to, to folks like you, is, is um, something that Autoscreen can address. Um, and that gets at some of the metrics that we've, we've obtained. So let me make sure I'm understanding. So kids who might flag as being at risk for autism based on what some care providers do right now might not actually have autism. And so the thinking at this point is that autoscreen might be a, a next step that a concerned medical provider could do to see if they're still concerned within the office before they um, get on a list and wait for a more in-depth evaluation. Does, am I summarizing that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So if, if the 
if the pathway for a child includes auto screen as a, at, at some point, then you would expect, you would hope that the outcome would be more efficient um, uh, triage. So kids are directed either to the diagnostic centers in the cases where that's very, ne where that's clearly necessary, mm -hmm. or it is also possible that they could be directed towards early intervention sooner. Okay. And that is perhaps one of the more critical um, uh, benefits that Autoscreen could offer. You know, and taking off my professional hat for a minute and just thinking as a parent, I can easily envision or I can easily imagine that for a lot of families and probably a lot of care providers too, um, there might be a lot of positives and benefits of being able to have a, an interaction and some some play and then a, a good conversation about that with the, the pediatrician that you already know and have a, a relationship with instead of um, having to wait and see a stranger. So, um, you know, from a, a parenting perspective, it makes a lot of sense that, that this might be a really good fit for some families. You know, is this something right now that um, you think that any provider should be able to do? You know, that's a, an interesting question. I think um, based on the pretty wide-ranging professional backgrounds um, of, the, of, the, of the folks that have been part of our preliminary work, I do think that it is, it is something that most pediatricians, whether you know, physicians or nurse practitioners, speech-language pathologists, could, could become proficient in. Um, I do think that some, some additional training would be required for, um, uh, for, for providers to feel that kind of confidence. Um, and so to that end, Autoscreen also um, aims to provide some of that training directly. Oh, okay. Um, and so it's a, it's an app. And is it um, just like on a tablet that you just carry around with you? Right. So the app that we have today will run on your commodity-grade tablets, you know, $100. So like something you just buy at Walmart. Exactly. Could also run on a, on a mobile phone, um, and so the idea is that cheap hardware um, is is ultimately going to be lower cost than these non-replaceable, or, or rather these non-reusable um, paper booklets, which are actually pretty costly. And you can speak to that probably more than I can. Yeah. Um, and so the other materials involved in the assessment are just you know toys that in fact we picked up from Walmart, and um, you know. Um, like what kinds of toys? Sure. Yeah. So for the um, f for the for the the, the 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 toy kit, we have uh, a ball, a, a race car, of course, bubbles and uh, stackable blocks. These these types of toys. So just kind of common toys you could even maybe grab at the grocery store, kind of off the shelf. And that seems like that would really, um, really help make it uh, easier for anybody to access and use any any qualified professional as opposed to some test kits which you have to order online and might cost a significant amount of money which um, in the past has been a barrier to some pediatricians being able to do this type of work right. is that fair based on some of the conversations that you've had as well yeah i i, I definitely think that's fair i think in fact there may be even two um pretty strong motivators for adoption from a, just from a financial perspective. Um, the first being exactly what you said, the materials are pretty affordable. 
um, and reusable. So the second pretty strong financial motivator could be uh, based on our preliminary conversations with physicians is that the tool uh, could be reimbursable under CPT guidelines at a higher uh, relative value unit than what is commonly used, if anything is used, um, than what is commonly used in practices uh, today. So relative to um, standard of care right now, this might be something that requires a little extra time but might um, make it more worthwhile from a financial perspective for a, a pediatrician to use? That's right. So if, if you take, say, um, uh, a 15-minute parent-scored questionnaire, you could, in that same amount of time, um, administer autoscreen. And there's about a 3x multiplier difference between that parent-scored questionnaire and autoscreen. Just based on the current a, the current CPT uh, guidelines around um, uh, behavioral assessment. So, Josh, we've worked together on a lot of different projects, and it's been a really cool experience because it combines Triad and the Kennedy Center, which are within the medical center, and um, it combines Triad and the Kennedy Center with the School of Engineering at Vanderbilt University, and. That involves a lot of opportunities to do new and creative things, to merge knowledge and, and um, technologies like virtual reality and, and things like that. But one of the things that really stands out to me about Autoscreen relative to some of the other work we've done is that it was largely created based on a triad database, right? And... Um, this database is, is it's neat because it includes information from thousands of families that have been seen through triad research and clinics. So um, when families come in, we ask for permission for us to use some of their data as part of future research studies. And when they say yes, um, it, it creates this um, pretty vast data set where we can really look for the items that seem helpful when we're trying to make an autism diagnosis and um, tease those apart from items that might not be as helpful or as useful. So we were able to apply a really complex model of data analysis. The technical term is a machine learning model. You correct me here if I'm wrong. Um, But basically, that's a way of letting um, computer-fueled math sift through a lot of information and tell us what's the most important. And so we combined that type of approach with the clinical expertise that's available at Triad based upon the input from thousands of families and we were able to use that to create Autoscreen. Yeah, and <clears throat> that's exactly right. It's, 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 it was informed, the model that's used to make the prediction about risk was informed in large part by that, that large data set. And the design of the application that encapsulates that model, that guides the assessment, was designed in direct consultation with the clinical uh, um, provider community. And so the uh, entire application was almost 
um, conceived and implemented um, from the ground up, not here's a, here's a technology that we think that you all will like. Yeah. Why don't you just start using it, that kind of approach. <laughs> Which is sometimes how science works, right? Right, right. And we continue to take in feedback from the community as we go along. And I think that's two elements of that I think are really interesting. The first is that as we continue to accumulate more and more data, the model that we use to make predictions and deliver statistics about gets better. So it's getting, it's getting smarter as it... Um as it learns more about children and behavior? That's right, that's right. And, you know, for example, you could say, currently you can say, um, based on the codes that the provider has, has provided, we would say that this, uh, the risk of autism is high. But what you can, down the road, say with more and more data is, we think the risk is high, and based on this particular score, X percent of children who receive that score were later diagnosed. And so you can oh. get richer and richer information um, from the model over time. The second thing that I think is really interesting about the application is we can also continue to, um, to pull more and more insight from the provider community about how they'd like to use the application. So new features that, um, that they would like to see added, you know, uh, for example. What, yeah, what are some of those? Sure. So, you know, uh, some providers um, maybe bilingual and might be interacting with families from you know different uh, with with uh, who speak well that's a that's a big concern for me as a clinician I only speak English and um, often wish that the the person's for example Spanish speaking pediatrician might be able to um, do some interactions or have conversations in the office because I think there's a lot to be said for for being able to build that relationship and that connection within someone's own language. Right, and and you know if if you can design a feature that assists providers in these different circumstances, um, that's that's something that you simply can't do with paper and pen um, approaches. Um, and you know and and that's and that's and that's uh, one of the in. in one of the advantages potentially of the digital application. Um, and so coming back to your original uh, point, you know, there, there are advantages of being able to interact with the community um, as we continue to, to develop um, this tool. So you're talking to pediatricians as you're, as you're developing the tool? So is it, is it like ready to roll out or are you still working on it or what, what's the status there? Right. In, in the first phase of our work, we delivered a pretty, pretty robust prototype, um, nothing that's commercially ready by any means. Um, but I'm going to stop you. Robust prototype. Sure. For those of us who aren't um, engineering experts, tell me what that means. Um, robust in the sense that the test does what it's supposed to do with few problems. So it works. Right, right. Prototype in the sense that it is it's usable for testing, but it's not something we can put on the App Store. Okay. And in, in the next phase of our work, where we are right now, um, is making it a commercial, uh, commercially ready type of software deployment with all of the security and licensing and all of that type of you know fundamental um, element, along with taking in um, and and acting upon the feedback that we got from the provider community about 
how the app works, the sequencing of the uh, assessment activities, um, and, and some, some of the prompting language and that type of thing. So just to use your example earlier of developing things and then just giving them to people and saying, here, use this. You've developed it a little bit, but then actually talked with people and allowed them to use it and test it. And it sounds like you're going to continue to do that even after you've responded to some of those changes. So it's really a tool that's been um, informed by the, the people that ideally would use it. That's, that's right. And this iterative kind of design approach um, will continue throughout the rest of our uh, second phase of work, which um, takes us actually all the way through September of next year. So okay. we'll have multiple opportunities to iterate on the design. Do you know how well it works right now? Yeah, right now we can talk about some of the um, success metrics from phase one. Um, and, you know, there are multiple categories there. So we can look at, well, um, how well did providers like it? And that's did, a, that's did they like it? <laughs> Pretty, um, pretty remarkably, we had very little um, dissatisfaction. Um, you know, we, we used a metric called the system usability scale. This is probably the most commonly used usability metric. It tells you generally about how easy it is to use a piece of technology. And when we, when we surveyed 42 providers, our average score was in the qualitative range of excellent. So um, pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty people, good. People like, yeah, this, this, this seems pretty okay. Yeah. That's right. And so that's, that's important because even if we have the most accurate tool ever, if people don't want to use it, then it's almost oh, worthless. Yeah, that's so – I'm sure we can all think of examples of things like that in our lives where the technology seems perfect, but it's pretty, pretty right. hard to use. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I can imagine that too within like just the context of a pediatric clinic that it would probably have to be something pretty – straightforward and intuitive for that to happen along a pretty quick time frame if you think about um, the length of most of those visits with, with your child's primary care provider. Right, right. So just to recap a little bit to make sure I'm understanding, um, it's an app that's been developed. It's in the next stage, about to start the next stage of testing. And in the app, pediatricians get some training on how to walk through different activities, is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, and so are they holding the app or um, are they listening to something or how does that work? Right, so the app um, runs on you know, your, your typical tablet, but you don't necessarily want to have a tablet out when you're interacting with a child. With a two-year-old especially. <laughs> right, uh, and so you want the tablet to be in the line of sight of the provider and within reach for um, interaction. But what we've done is introduced the ability to remotely operate the tablet and to remotely, to wirelessly uh, receive prompts from the tablet. And what I mean by that is the provider using a wireless remote controller can, can advance the assessment remotely uh -huh. and can receive instructions in real time at their own pace directly from the tablet. So they can be on the floor playing with a child and just use a little clicker to click through what they need to do. And while they're doing that, they can just hear the app giving them instructions about what happens next? That's right. And, and in terms of initial training, 
before a provider sees a child using autoscreen, they can actually walk through it in, in, in isolation, just practicing, going through the motions, making sure that they have a good understanding of what the activity entails before the family comes in for an actual assessment. You know, when I've talked with a lot of pediatricians and pediatric primary care providers, a lot of them will tell me, you know, I'm really, really worried that this patient has autism, but I just don't quite know how to really assess for that and talk for talk through that with, with a family, um, you know, within the context of primary care. Is that something that autoscreen would help with? I believe so. You know, uh, coming back to what autoscreen generates um, based on the provider's inputs, it will, it will give you some information about high and low risk, but you might wonder, well, how was that decision made? And so what, what autoscreen prompts a provider to, to, to score are, are aspects of social behavior that can be easily described. So you could, you could identify strengths or challenges in certain key areas of behavior. So, uh, you know, j- joint attention, um, uh, social reciprocity. So I remember as we've been talking, we've been working together to create the app, that we've had a lot of discussions about what I look for as an expert clinician when I'm working with a very young child who has autism concerns. So I'm thinking about kids who are under the age of three, and that's the age group targeted by autoscreen, am I right? Yes, that's right, 18 to 36 months. So thinking about 18 to 36 month olds where their families and their um, pediatricians have have raised concern for autism, a lot of the time I'm looking for things like, well, um, is the child looking at me if they need something? are they trying to show their parents some of the cool toys that I've pulled out? Are they um, using any sounds or using any gestures to try to communicate with me? Are they playing back and forth with me? If I get excited about something, will they share in that excitement? Um, and you know, when they have the toys in front of them, are they playing with them in the way that I might expect? Or are they playing with them in some ways that are a little bit more repetitive or... Um, focused on like how things look or smell or or feel. Those are some of the, the very um, early core symptoms that I look for just when I'm interacting with a child who's, who's present for an autism assessment. And so those are a lot of the things that autoscreen helps teach a pediatrician essentially to watch for, these things that you can observe pretty easily with some level of training as part of a fairly, um, I, I was going to say casual, it's not really casual, but a very natural feeling play, play interaction with a young child. Right, right. And, and those, those types of observations are something that we're really trying to double down on in this next phase of work is um, identifying through a, sort of a video model what do these what do these key observations look like? So in the next phase of work, one of the education-related components of the application that we're beginning to introduce is this idea of showing a first-time user or someone that's just refreshing their understanding of the, of the, the procedures what neurotypical versus autistic-like behavior looks like with a video model. So giving them a video example of this is what a child with autism might do 
this is what a child without autism might do. Is that right? That's exactly right, yeah. And that makes a lot of sense because sometimes if you just read something on paper, it's hard to understand what that might look like in real life. But that does make me wonder, you know, is this going to capture every child with autism? I, 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 that's a great question. I, there's such a range, as you know, um, of, of behavior. And, and there are all, there's also the consideration that um, maybe the child was just having a, a bad day. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so as two-year-olds are sometimes prone to do. Yeah. Exactly. And so we won't be able to capture the full spectrum of behavior. And but and that's fine because again we are we are developing a high level screener, um, a, 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 a rigorously structured uh, risk assessment. Um, th- this will not replace a full diagnostic evaluation. So we've talked a little bit about how there was a first phase and a second phase. Within the first phase, did you look at how well AutoScreen actually worked? Yes, and what we what we found was that our accuracy, as a measure, accuracy was on par with a lot of other commonly used assessments. And so you might ask the question, well, what's the value of AutoScreen if it's as accurate as these other assessments? And what I'll say is accuracy is not the best measure and certainly not the only measure that you should be looking at when you're comparing screening tools. Probably one of the more important um, measures is something called specificity, which basically relates to false positives. The so that's like you flag as being at risk for autism, but you don't have autism. So that would be a false positive? That's exactly right. Okay. Amy, from your perspective, what are the challenges associated with false positives? False positives are really challenging from a clinical perspective because we really want people to be screening for autism. We really want that to happen. It's important to catch and identify kids early, not just to get them involved in early intervention or school services, but also just to help families understand why some things are different about their children. Um, Evidence shows us that early recognition of autism can lead to for lack of a better word, I'll say better long-term outcomes, but that's an imperfect word okay. um, because we don't understand a lot of the complexity that actually goes into um, defining what better really means, mm-hmm. right? I think that's different for every person and every family and a, a really complex issue across um, all areas of disability and neurodiversity especially with autism. And so I, I want to be sure to, to be sensitive to that as we talk about it. But from the perspective, again, of a parent, and also from the perspectives of the pediatricians that we've been talking with, right, as part of this and other work, um, we, the American Academy of Pediatrics, we are asking pediatricians to do these screenings. 18 and 24 months, please, please, please screen children for autism risk. So many of them are doing that. Tennessee has an excellent rate of doing that, which is wonderful. But because no instruments are perfect, some children will flag as at risk on those instruments that don't go on to actually have autism, which um, 
can sometimes make providers reluctant to screen mm. um, and can maybe sometimes um, make it hard for providers and parents who are then having to wait a long time and kind of exist in, in limbo in a way as they wait to get solid answers. And um, from my clinical perspective, um, auto screen is an excellent tool for a pediatrician that really wants to be able to get um, some more detailed in-office data, right? Because um, you can talk with a family, just like I do, and get a lot of good information. But sometimes it's helpful also to be able to get on the floor and interact with the child, which pediatricians do, um, but to do that in a really informed way that really takes an autism perspective and say, okay, I hear from you, mom, you are really worried about autism. And I see here that your child is showing signs of autism based on this other screening tool I've used. And now I'd really like to actually sit down and interact with your child for a few minutes here and then give you some feedback on my professional opinion. And that's not something that every provider is going to feel comfortable with or have time to do. Um, and I think that we've gotten that feedback too, right, as right, part of right. our, our um, process of getting that, that potential customer input. And that may not be appropriate for every family either. But my sincere hope as part of this work is that for some it's going to be a really good fit and really going to give um, – pediatric primary care providers and families opportunities to have really good informed conversations and also just get an extra level of training on some mm. very clear markers for strong autism risk in young children. Mm. So based, it seems to me that there's a kind of a change in the public kind of understanding of, of what autism is, what it means, and do you think that that has had any impact on clinical practice and parents kind of um, uh, kind of getting involved sooner to identify potential um, developmental delays? Absolutely. As far as which direction it tends to direct families or providers, I think that's very individualized and very personalized, especially when we're thinking about making an autism diagnosis for a very, very young child who's mm. often already dependent on other people for most aspects of everyday life. Um, I think about autism in a couple of ways. And you know, you hear me say autism, autism spectrum disorder. I tend to use those terms interchangeably, but certainly understand that other people don't. Mm, right. Um, I think about it in terms of describing what might be different about a child. So I really don't think of autism as a delay, although it can be accompanied by different delays. I see. Um, I really think about autism, and my understanding is that the, the general push is to talk about autism in terms of differences and how one even understands interacting with other people, um, when and how to communicate, and then um, how someone experiences the world around them, right? Like what they're into and how they move their body when they're excited. Right, and right. 
what sounds or smells they like or don't like, right? These are all things that we can relate to. And so one thing I hear a lot from families is, well, you know, I read about autism and I learn about autism, but, you know, I hate the feel of wool sweaters or, you know, I was really shy as a kid. And um, I think that makes it really confusing to understand, like, well, why do we give it a diagnosis then? And um, those are complex questions. But for a very young child, again, I think that a diagnosis, number one, can really open doors to very important intervention that directly supports that child, not, not to change who they are. That's certainly not my goal or recommendation, but rather to help them understand maybe that other people are different from them too in that same way, right? right. And that they may need to try a different strategy to get their need met, right? So for example, on auto screen, um, if they um, just hold a jar of bubbles when the pediatrician gives it to them, but they don't know to make eye contact or make a noise or give it, um, that's a situation where a very young child's autism symptom is getting in the way of something they want to do. Mm, right. And so I want it, my goal is that um, children be able to access what they want in the way that works best for them. And also, again, that parents understand that there are probably some different ways that they um, will need to, to approach and support their child now and over time. And that's not even necessarily to put limits on what they'll do. But um, so yes, the growing understanding and recognition, not only just that autism exists, but that it is so variable across people, absolutely has raised awareness, absolutely has pushed for more screening, um, but also has created some complexities that can be really hard for parents and pediatricians to navigate as we expand some of what we're looking for. Um, and so I know we've talked as far as auto, as far as auto screen development is concerned that our primary focus right now in piloting and developing this work is to pick up on young children whose autism symptoms are fairly apparent that are impacting their ability to participate in daily activities in a, in a um, pretty significant way. So um, not meant to um, capture every child with, with all of the different complexities. They're just a part of the human experience, right? right. But when um, parents are really worried about something and pediatricians and pediatric care providers are also worried. And um, children are presenting with some fairly significant symptoms that are impacting them or their family. It's a structured way for people to have really good informed conversations about, okay, let's see if we can try to tease apart. Um, if not what's going on, then the best direction to go next because Without that information, I think families sometimes really struggle with um, not only what to do, but where to go for information and to also um, just feel good about what they're doing as, as parents or even 
pediatric care providers, right? Because they absolutely want to see their patients succeed and do well, and um, and and that goes for their parents too, I think. Right, right. I'm aware that um, you know another kind of component of the the challenge of early assessment that that you've been involved in in, in is uh, this uh, uh, telehealth um, uh, uh, type of assessment mm-hmm. and um, I'm wondering what other what what other interesting areas of innovation do you see kind of on the horizon with regards to early assessment um, better identification um, more um, far-reaching strategies for uh, including you know, families in rural communities and, and that type of thing. I mean, Josh, as you know, and as part of our motivation for this work, the, um, just for listeners that might not know, families that live in rural areas can sometimes have a really hard time accessing diagnostic experts and might have a lot of trouble even driving to get to see someone like me with their child, you know, for several hours in one day. And it creates a very real barrier to accessing care and answering questions. And so when I think about tools like auto-screen or telediagnosis, and I think about innovation, I think about... um, gathering evidence, so doing research and getting data related to all of these different um, new ways of thinking about assessment of autism risk. So um, there are gold standard diagnostic models that are very well established, that are excellent, um, but that might be really hard to get. And so thinking about different innovative ways of reaching families where they are, however that might look in a way that works well for them and for the people on the other end that are working with them, that's really the area of of innovation that I think is coming down the pipeline over the next few years. I see, okay. So rather than a specific tool, some of that um, flexibility in approach, but Again, also being careful to um, gather data and understand what we're doing in an informed and clinically sensitive and appropriate way as well, just like we're doing with auto-screen. So that feeds in a little bit to my next question. We've talked about phase two. What exactly will that look like? What will we be doing as part of that? Sure. So when I think about the work that we have left to do in phase two, uh, I think there are three components to that work. Uh, there's the continued um, r- uh, prototype development where we'll continue to introduce you know, new features, um, run the features by the provider community, get their feedback, and, and you know, continue to iterate in that fashion. Then there's the clinical work, which is probably the biggest chunk of, of the effort in phase two. Um, and, and that is validating the tool on a large scale. So our pilot results, our phase one testing results, tell us that we have preliminary validity. So the, the 
the algorithm that we've developed is accurate and it is um, has has reasonable sensitivity and specificity. So it's catching most of the kids that have autism diagnoses. That's right, and it's it's misclassifying as few children um, as possible. Um, But will that hold up on a larger sample is the big question in phase two. And that is something that we um, will will, uh, aim to show. And then with the uh, company moving this as a product towards commercialization, there are a number of strategic, um, business strategic types of activities going on. Um, And, you know, for example, um, suppose we we validate the tool. Everyone um, says that you know it has excellent usability. Well, how do we actually get it in the hands of providers? And so we have to start thinking about distribution channels for that. And then fundraising beyond the end of the grant. And um, I should mention, we have received all of our funding to date from the National Institutes of Health, as well as from an organization here in Tennessee called Launch Tennessee. Um, but the grants will not sustain us as a company um, forever. So we, it's, it's going to be um, the next major challenge from a business perspective of how do we generate revenue from this in a sustainable way. And this is funded through a type of grant called an SBIR grant. Is that right? That's right. The Small Business Innovation Research Grant. Uh, this, is, this, uh, this grant originated from legislation from, I believe, the mid-80s, where the mission behind the SBIR program was to provide, to subsidize research that could lead to commercialization that was unlikely to get private investment. And so what you found was a lot of university-based, um, a, a lot of university academic-based teams would apply for these grants, and all, all of the major agencies offer these grants, NASA, um, you know, NIH, National Science Foundation, um, and, uh, you know, they, they allocate a small percentage of their budget annually towards these types of grants. And it is kind of an ideal form of investment because the government takes no equity and they expect nothing in return except that you deliver on your projected milestones. And so the SBIR program is structured in two phases. Phase one is a small feasibility type of, um, you know, um, the scope of the phase one program is to demonstrate the feasibility of an idea. So like we were talking about, like we developed the app and we did some initial testing and we showed that, hey, we can flag some kids and here are some of the activities, but oh man, there are still some things that we really need to work out here. That's exactly right. Okay. That's, and, and, that's, and that's how the government mitigates the risk. So if phase one is not successful, the, the, the project can come to an end. But so if it, it sounds is, like phase one was successful yes. for us. Okay. Yes. And so... And if and so now we move on to phase two, where we have to to show okay it's feasible, but will it real really um, survive in the market? And so we're still at the beginning stages of our phase two, um, but um, I guess I would say things are looking promising um, at this stage. We're uh, continuing to our model validity continues to hold strong. Um, the application itself has improved. Um, and we have some early interest from potential partners that could lead to um, recommendation to uh, pediatricians in the state of Tennessee, um, which obviously would be an excellent um, type of partnership to, to, to have. So in the next phase, 
we'll bring pediatricians in and we'll let them run through the app with real kids. Is that right? That's right. Families who have not yet received a, di a diagnostic evaluation will, will come in for the study. The first step will be the administration of autoscreen, followed by a comprehensive evaluation. So basically, they'll do autoscreen with a pediatrician, and then they'll get the full assessment like they would get if they waited and came to see me. And then we'll compare the two? That's right. What this new study design will allow us to do is to look at measures of accuracy as well as concurrent validity with other established uh, screening tools. Well, Josh, thank you so much for sitting down and taking the time to talk with me today. You know, we work so closely together, but um, sometimes we don't stop to actually ask each other questions about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I've really enjoyed that. And again, I just want to say that I really love that AutoScreen represents the collaboration across our different groups and our areas of expertise that even though it is a federally funded research project, it also has this real emphasis on listening to real people and changing what we do um, in a way that will hopefully create a tool that will have meaningful positive change for some of the families that we work with. So thank you for your efforts on that. I think it has the potential to really improve some people's lives and well-being. Thank you for listening to The Promise of Discovery. Be sure to visit the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center website at vkc.vumc.org to learn more about today's episode. And tune in next time for more on the innovative research and intellectual and developmental disabilities from the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center.